I'd love to hear it. What are some what are some things you crave? Food, did you just say food in general? All right. Well, we'll pray for your wife. What what else? What 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 else do people crave? Chocolate? I heard a chocolate. Anyone else craving the chocolate? Ice cream. There's always room for ice cream. Chipotle. All right. Now, we're not sponsored by this, so we're not going to get into any more brands. All right. That's good. All right, look, I, um, unfortunately for me and my wallet and my wardrobe, I find myself craving lots of foods at different times. And uh, one of them that I thought of right away when we thought of this community time question was this, this, this sticky rice mango dessert that some Thai restaurants have. I mean, like, I can be overcome <laughs> with desire for this. And I love getting other people into the cravings that I have, so hence right now. So just, oh, I just so good. My friend Keisha was up here from Florida. Now I've got her traipsing all over Tampa trying to find it as well because it's just so good. I just love it. And I have noticed this about us as uh, humans in that when we crave something, when we deeply, like, want something, we, most of us will try to go out and find it if we can. Have you noticed that? I've gone all over town calling different restaurants looking for that mango sticky rice. And I think the reality of life is this, that if we crave something and desire it, we are compelled to go looking for it or at least something like it. And so I'm compelling you all to go looking for mango sticky rice dessert. But I, I actually think this is just such a good illustration of this next conversation that we're moving into. It's called Seek First the Kingdom. Seek first the kingdom. This is a well-known phrase found right in the middle of what's become the infamous Sermon on the Mount that Jesus gives that's documented here in Matthew as we're going through the book of Matthew together this spring. Uh, three chapters, did you see how I said spring? I'm just bringing it in. This spring, we're doing it. Okay, three chapters in the book of Matthew cover this Sermon on the Mount and kind of right in this pinnacle moment in the sermon, Jesus says this phrase, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. And in some ways, you could say this is kind of like the big takeaway from the Sermon on the Mount. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. And, and since this is the conversation we're going to have for the next few weeks, let me just unpack that a little bit more. When, when Jesus says this, seek, desire, long for, crave, go after, go looking for, seek first his kingdom, God's kingdom, and his righteousness. And many of you know the word righteousness could also be translated as justice, or I like to think of it as right-making, the right-making work of God. Seek first, desire God's kingdom and the righteousness and justice, the, the right-making of God. And the rest of this Sermon on the Mount is fleshing out kind of what this might look like so that we might have a chance to go after it. Like, if you know what it's like and you've had a taste of it, then you start to crave it and you want to go for it and you want to desire it and go after it. And what's so cool is as we've been talking about Jesus' words in Matthew, the first thing that he says is the kingdom of God is near. And so if seek first the kingdom of God is, is the invitation, then that means you are going to seek something that is in our midst. And Jesus later says in, in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 7, he says, seek and you will find. And so this invitation is towards something really real, that we can seek after this kingdom and we will find it, that it is in our midst, it is near. So I'm going to just be honest, though, right away and say that the truth is that there's a lot of things that fill that spot in my heart and my mind, the desire part of my heart and mind, including the mango sticky rice, you know. And on a deeper level, I think that 
I find myself longing for things, and they're not all bad things, but when I think about how, how have I informed the things I'm longing for, the truth is, is like Instagram might have informed that more than anything else. Or like societal pressures about what I should have or should be about, the shoulds that we often talk about. And, and I find when I think about this question, how am I using my time? How am I using my energy, uh, the, the, my finances, the things I have? When I think about that, I think, what is informing that the most? And the truth is, is that often I think it's these like expectations that I've collected along the way. Perhaps you've experienced this as well. They're not always bad, but the truth is, is that a lot of the, the expectations of what I'm supposed to desire and these desires that I have and these things I long for and go after, while they might be good things at times, they're certainly not rooted in my faith in Jesus. And so maybe you resonate with that today as we think about this conversation and this important invitation to seek first the kingdom. And I want to invite us into this conversation in a very specific way. When I think about who Jesus was and is in our life and I think about this sermon, I think that this is an invitation from Jesus that is not about shame. I don't think it's about shame and saying, well, if I list my desires, the kingdom of God wasn't in there this week. Oh, uh, you know, I really don't think that's it. I think Jesus is saying, I love you enough to want you to want this. Because when you do, it will change your life. I want you to desire my kingdom because it's the thing that truly lasts. I want this for you. And, and when I think about that in my life, at this point in my life of faith, I look back and I think, the days that I thought, you know what, I was seeking the kingdom, those are some of the most meaningful days of my life. You know, they weren't always the most fun, I'll be honest, but they were meaningful. And I think that's why out of Jesus' love for us, he invites us to seek first the kingdom. He invites us to receive his grace and his salvation and then do this important work, and I think he gently reminds us this, to intentionally realign our hearts towards the kingdom, towards what God wants for us, towards what this kingdom is all about. And with this empowerment from the Holy Spirit that Jesus ends up giving us, I think that we can seek first this kingdom uh, because of Jesus' love for us to seek first that kingdom. So we're going to jump into the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount because really, right here in the beginning, Jesus gives us a, a picture, like a taste, of what it is that he's inviting us to seek. Just a, kind of a picture of what that looks like. So we're going to start with Jesus setting the stage right there in Matthew 5. If you have a Bible, we'll have it up on the screen. Now, many scholars believe that, that it may not have been one long sermon that Jesus was giving, but that Matthew, his disciple, is writing, a, kind of a, pulling together all of his teachings into one um, long sermon in the three chapters. We're not totally sure. But what we can see is that it's very clear that these are connected and that there is a very clear message that's consistent from Jesus that we would come to expect, I think. And when we start out with Matthew, we see that there are some very clear kind of this is what's happening right away in Matthew 5, okay? So let me just read that first part. Now, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them. Now, before we go on to the next part, there's something to, important, a few things to point out about the context of what's being said here. Because we can listen to these words and try to think, how does this matter in 2022? But how did it matter to people at the beginning and what was happening. So first we see that Jesus sees the crowds. Now we know from reading the rest of Jesus' story that sometimes he sees the crowds and he moves towards them, doesn't he? But in this scenario, he doesn't. He moves away. He withdraws to this mountainside. Um, and as he pulls towards the mountainside, uh, we see that he sits down. All right, so here's some interesting things. 
many scholars would say that Jesus going to the mountain is kind of to echo Moses going to Mount Sinai to get the law. Later in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says he came to fulfill the law. And then it's interesting that he sat down, and I just think this is an interesting fact, because I always picture Jesus and others, the ones who are standing and everyone else is sitting like you all are. But in the rabbinic tradition, oftentimes it's the rabbi who sat and everyone else stood. So for the rest of the series, if you could all stand, I'm going to sit on the... I'm kidding. <laughs> Nobody would be here by like week three. And then it says, his disciples came to him, and he began to teach them. And I feel like this is really critical for us. Notice who the audience is of the Sermon on the Mount. It's the disciples. It's not the crowds who are curious about Jesus. It's the people who've said, all right, I'm in. I'm, I'm going to follow you. And so perhaps the, the realities of the Sermon on the Mount being pretty bold, pretty clear, pretty direct, is Jesus saying, all right, this is how I'm going to speak to those who are saying, I'm in for this in your kingdom. I'm, I'm coming with you. And perhaps Jesus would have spoken differently to the crowds. In fact, we see that he does. And so these are some important things for us to note as we step into this next part. Now, the next few verses that we're going to focus on today have come to be called the Beatitudes. The Beatitudes. Now, this word, Beatitude, is actually rooted in Latin, and it basically means uh, happy, rich, and blessed. Happy, rich, and blessed. And so here we have these eight descriptions of those who Jesus calls blessed and why. But what we find right away, you'll see this, is that Jesus announces these blessings on the most unlikely audience. He announces these blessings over those who are destitute, grief-stricken, the oppressed, the people who are longing for justice or, or righteousness or right-making in their life. Dr. Janine Brown, who we're so blessed to have teaching one of our equipping classes, uh, says in her commentary, that there's two things that we really need to know about this context in the first century so that we can really understand here in 2022 the depth of meaning of these Beatitudes. The first thing is this. The broader uh, Greco-Roman world or the culture, the, the dominant culture that these Jewish folks found themselves in uh, was one that was highly conscious of status. Okay, so all of the systems of the Greco-Roman world were ordered around status, right? You have the rich and the poor. You have the aristocracy and you've got the peasants. You've got men and women. You've got uh, the free and the slave. Everything was ordered around this idea that there is status and you want to achieve the highest form of status you can have. And so when Jesus is speaking into this, you need to think about that in the back of your mind. And of course, we have this kind of status situation in our cultures as well, but it's, it's distinct and different than the first century. Now, the second thing that Dr. Janine Brown says we need to notice is that in Jewish theology, Yahweh, God, was revealed as a God who sides with the poor and the lowly. Okay, so in Isaiah, we've been exploring Isaiah the last few months as well, uh, we see that this, there is a hope that the people of God have of a future when God would make all the wrong things right. And the people who are the poor and the lowly are the ones who are low in status, right? And so coming into this, these disciples would know that Yahweh God is one who doesn't move to the highest status, but moves to those that are the lowest. And that's the framework in which we step into this reality. Now, this is how Dr. Janine Brown calls it. She calls it the great reversal. The Beatitudes are the great reversal, the reversal of status, the reversal of values. This is the great reversal. So let me read them to you. And as I read them to you, I invite you just to say to the Holy Spirit, just to, to impress upon you the weight of what it meant for this great reversal to the people who are listening to it and what it means for us today. So it continues on in verse 3. He said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. 
Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Now, if you have a Bible, you'll see that it goes on for a few more verses, which scholars would say is kind of commentary on that last, the eighth one of these eight stanzas. So most people would say that we need to understand these eight stanzas with the first four and the second four as like two groupings, okay? And and as we look at the two groupings, uh, what we want to see here is that there are are four statements that are kind of about one sense of reversal and then four statements about another sense of reversal. And man, I'm telling you, as we study this, we could go one week on each of them, okay? So we're not going to do that today. We're going to be doing a little bit of a flyover, but I think that there's some depth of meaning we can take with us. So the first four statements are about the kingdom of God as a reversal of situation and status. A reversal of situation and status. The the status, right there in that first one, the status the world around you gives you is poor and poor in spirit. But, But I, Jesus says, I say the kingdom is yours. The kingdom of God is yours. You can see there's Jesus is flipping the script, right? Uh, Jesus says those who grieve will be comforted. Those who are meek, or a better way for us to think of it is powerless. The people who are the most powerless, Jesus says, are the ones who will inherit the earth. You see how he's turning things upside down from what people would expect in this culture of status and the way people would think? Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness they will be satisfied or filled. Now, I I loved this commentary that said the best way for us to think of this idea of hunger and thirst for righteousness is to say, those who are starved for justice. Those who are starved for justice. They they deeply desire wrong things to be made right in their life and the lives of the people around them. Jesus says they will be filled. They will be satisfied when the wrong things are made right. So that's the first four. Now, the second four the second four are about, are about God's kingdom as a reversal of values. A reversal of values. Um, the cultures at that time had certain values, just like we live in a world where there's lots of different ways of understanding values. And here Jesus is saying, these are the values of my kingdom. And he starts out with this idea of mercy, that showing mercy to other people is his value in the kingdom. Now, then, and I would say now, that value is not a high one. Revenge and retribution and, re- and vengeance, these are things that are valued in a lot of the cultures that we see around us, aren't they? And so this is a reversal of values. The kingdom value is mercy. You see in that next one that God's kingdom values purity of heart. A good way for us to think about that is integrity. Integrity. The kingdom of God values integrity of saying, doing the right thing, being consistent, not being hypocritical, even if it means it's not going to be good for you. <laughs> and in the culture then, as of now, the, you know, I just think this idea of like, but if I can get ahead or if I can get status, then it's all right if we just kind of, you know, go a little bit easy on this one. And I think that was true then. But Jesus says that having integrity and purity of heart is a value. The kingdom values peacemaking. The kingdom values peacemaking. It says they will be called children of God. The peacemakers will be called children of God. I just love thinking of it this way. That if, if you're in God's family, then you are by default a peacemaker. That's part of the role. That's part of being in the family is that we are peacemakers, not always peacekeepers, but people who say God's shalom is what we're pursuing. 
And, and we step in with wisdom to the best of our ability to say we want to pursue that together. And then we've got this last one. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness or justice, uh, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, uh, Dr. Janine Brown puts it really help in a helpful way. She says, Blessing is given to those who are persecuted for their commitment to and their solidarity with those who are experiencing injustice. Think about that. Jesus says you are blessed if you're someone who chooses commitment to and solidarity with those experiencing injustice. And I think that's an important piece there for us because in a status-driven culture that they were a part of, if you choose to be with the people who are experiencing injustice, you're choosing to identify with people lower than you. And that was a choice that they could make. And here Jesus says you're blessed if you do that because, yes, you will be persecuted because you're going to be choosing to step away from that sense of privilege and that sense of status. So if we were going to kind of summarize the two main points here, it's that the Beatitudes declare God's kingdom as a reversal of status and situation and a reversal of values. A reversal of status and situation and a reversal of values. You see how he's flipping the script on what would have been understood in the first century, and I would say flipping the script to how we often see the world around us value things, right, and the status that people are given. I find it encouraging, I'll say this, I find it encouraging to hear Jesus name all of these difficult realities like injustice and grief and powerlessness, and he says that God's blessing is in the midst of these things. I find that so encouraging. It just feels like God sees you, you know, and God knows what you're going through, and God meets you in that. God's presence, God's blessing is in that. But we can feel the tension in that too, can't we? We can feel the tension in this reality, the fact that uh, it sure doesn't often feel like rich, happy blessings when we're in a time of deep grief, does it? It sure, you know, when we find ourselves sometimes called names or put down by others when we're trying to be in solidarity with those who are experiencing injustice, I mean, that doesn't always feel like being blessed to be a blessing. These are the, the realities of the tension, I think, that comes up when we think about this. And I would say that the Beatitudes speak directly to this tension, but it's easy for us to miss it. And so I want us to look at this today. Once you see it, I would say you can't unsee it. So here we go. The final and important thing we see is true about the kingdom in Jesus' words is that God's kingdom is in the midst of the tension of the already but not yet. All right, this phrase, already but not yet. The kingdom of God is already, it's near, Jesus says, but it's also not yet in the sense that it's going to come fully when all things are restored and all wrong things are made right. And so this phrase, already but not yet, has kind of begun to be used by scholars to help us to understand this tension that we find ourselves in. And so if it's a new phrase to you, it simply means that the kingdom is coming in our midst and we see wrong things being made right, praise the Lord, and we get to celebrate that and join in. But there's other times when we're in this tension and we say, this wrong can't even be made right now. <laughs> And we feel that tension, don't we? We feel this tension of the already but not yet. And we need to pay close attention to what's being said here because this tension is actually kind of front and center. So watch this, okay? So the first and last line of these eight Beatitudes, this is Hebrew poet, poetry, the way that he's speaking. This would have been a common way to kind of be very clear. So it's, it's not by accident that the first and the last Beatitude match. And they say the phrase, the kingdom is yours. And in the original language, it would be very clear that that's a present tense statement. The kingdom is yours now. Okay, it's echoing that idea that the kingdom is near. The six statements, the, the, the two statements on the edge. Now, the six statements in the middle 
point out that the kingdom of God is not yet fully here because there's very clear future tense statements that I think are, you can see it in the English translation, but it's even more clear in the original language. So when you look at it here, you see they will be comforted. They will inherit the earth. They will be filled. Those who are starved for justice might not be filled right now, but they will be. It's the future tense. So you see the first and the last being the already, and then the middle six are the not yet. That this might be in process, but not yet fully realized. So when Jesus invites us to seek first his kingdom and his justice, the promise that we will find what we seek is there, but it's not always as immediate as we would like it to be. Right? <laughs> I'm just like, I feel that. I feel that. At times we experience the kingdom in our midst, which is so exciting. But part of why I think, you know, I said earlier, I, I don't feel like most of the days of my life are oriented towards seeking the kingdom, if I'm honest. I think one of the reasons that it's so hard to allow our lives to be guided by this idea, this desire to seek the kingdom is because that sense of longing doesn't feel good. And it doesn't totally go away, does it? When we're actively seeking, we are not then yet satisfied. We're longing. We're in a place of longing to feel longing for the wrong things to be made right, sometimes in our own hearts, in our own lives, and sometimes in the world around us. But Jesus says, seek first the kingdom of God and God's justice. I know a lot of you were probably with me and Pastor Ashish in the tension this week as we see a, yet another killing of a young black man. And, and there's just this, this feeling of like, this didn't need to happen. Why did this happen? It seemed like this could have been avoided. And when we look at this situation and we say, how do we seek first the kingdom and God's justice in something so terrible? It's, it feels such a, like, so difficult. This is a wrong that cannot be made right in this life. It can't. I mean, there can be changes to policies. There can be accountability for people. But Amir can't be brought back to his family. <laughs> he can't be brought back to his friends. The, the, that part of the wrong cannot be made right in this life. There's the tension, isn't it? We're sitting right in it. But Jesus says, blessed are those who are starved for justice. What if the, the truth that is hard maybe to accept is that a day seeking the kingdom it's sometimes exciting where we see God moving in our midst, but other days, a day seeking the kingdom feels like starving, but you aren't satisfied. Feels like being overcome with thirst, but, and you're parched, but there's no water in sight. Jesus says they will be filled. They will be satisfied. But sometimes, I think with love, he says, not yet. I feel that tension. Are, are you with me in this tension? Come on, somebody tell me you're with me. We feel this in our life. The consistent state of a kingdom Christian is one of longing. The consistent state of a kingdom person trying to follow Jesus is one of longing, one of desire, of craving, of intentionally looking for the kingdom. My friend Danielle Strickland calls this the holy discontent that we live with. The holy discontent. When we seek first the kingdom, we get to see God do amazing things in our midst right now. I, I have seen that. I hope you have too. But we also have the longing for the not yet, a holy discontent that's never totally gone. It's always there. Sometimes it's overwhelming, and sometimes it's this low hum, but it's always there. This holy discontent that we have knowing that clearly we have not yet seen all the wrong things made right. And as I said earlier, I do believe this is something that Jesus invites us to out of love. 
I really do. Because even though uh, it's not a feel, like being starved for justice is not a feeling I love to have, I think it's because of Jesus' love that he wants us to have it. Because when we do see uh, experiences of God's kingdom making the wrong things right, it's all the more powerful and all the more sweet and all the more clear that it's only God who could do it. If Jesus loves me, why would he give me this sense of grief that doesn't feel like we're comforted right now? Why, why would this happen? But Jesus says that you're blessed, knowing that God will comfort us all one day, and there'll be no more crying and no more tears and no more pain. If we're people who choose to see status through the lens of who Jesus calls blessed— then we're going to have to do a reversal, like flip the script on what the good life is and what the American dream might be. I mean, some of us were promised something like that, not everybody. And, and at best, when someone experiences the, seems like they've arrived at, at this good life, at best they say they're not satisfied still. <laughs> at worst, they realize that their wealth and, and what they have is sometimes used unjustly. So this reversal of status, this reversal of values, I just think it's so hard to actually live into. I'll just be honest and say that. But I will say this. I do think it's possible. But there's two things that I have found in my life. Without this, I can't do it, okay? Without this, I can't live into the great reversal of values. I can't live into the great reversal of status. And here's the two things. First, empowerment of the Holy Spirit. Jesus gives these words, but by the end, he says, I'm leaving, but I'm sending my spirit to help you, to empower you, to lead you and guide you. Without that, it's not going to happen in my life, at least. And secondly, a community of people. I can't do it by myself. I know I need other people. And when that combination happens, empowerment of the Holy Spirit and a community of people saying, we're going to seek the kingdom together, things happen that would never happen without those two things. And some of you know that I've been trying to kind of get you excited about this uh, announcement that we want to do today. And this is a story that is an example of seeking first the kingdom with the empowerment of the Holy Spirit and a community of people doing it together. Uh, for those of you who are kind of newer to our community, it's been about a year since we've gotten some people together, 25 of you, to discern and say, hey, we feel a holy discontent about the situation regarding homelessness and affordable housing crisis in our city. Some of you, you know, we feel a holy discontent about this. We feel starved for justice about this. And we got together and started to discern and through that time of discerning, uh, we just said, okay, God, how can we join in your restoration story in this? And that's a huge question, and it's hard to discern. But the truth is, is that what we learned was that right now, the Twin Cities has one of the largest discrepancies between affordable housing and those who need it per capita in the country. That's a new stat that we're seeing, that we are at the very top of the list in the wrong top of the list you want to be in. Like, it's at the worst. So the 25 of us had this holy discontent about this, and we noticed as we did interviews of people who already do this work in housing and homelessness in our city, we noticed this hunger for justice coming up. I noticed it. A lot of us did. And we realized that so many people are dealing with stable housing or without having access to affordable housing because of brokenness and pain and injustice in individuals' lives and in systems. And so we learned something important there was going to need to be a great reversal. <laughs> there was going to need to be a great reversal of status, how we see people who are currently unhoused or who are in need. And there was going to be a very needed great reversal of values. 
And as we pursued that together, we had interviews and meetings and we followed God into what it would mean to see a great reversal, to see, the, to see a flip of the script. And this is what we came up with and this is our next step. Check it out. Hello from our backyard. Hey, this, this is, is our, our backyard. backyard. Mill City Church, this is your backyard. This is our backyard. For the last year, Mill City has been discerning what our role is as a church in the housing and homelessness crisis here in our city. And we're about to start some experiments that the guide team is really excited about. Throughout this process, we have learned about a movement called NIMBY, which stands for Not In My Backyard. These are groups of people who sometimes have compassion for those who can't find affordable housing or who are unhoused. However, for social and often financial reasons, don't want affordable housing or people who've been previously homeless to be living in their neighborhoods. Sometimes these groups of people even organize to keep diversity and different economic levels of housing out of where they live. But what if we flipped that script? What if we at Mill City said, Imbi, in my backyard? In our backyard. In our backyard. In our backyard, Mill City Church. We are developing a partnership with Yard Homes. This is an organization that specializes in accessory dwelling units, or ADUs. These are structures complete with plumbing and electrical that are on an existing property where there's already another building. ADUs provide a home for one or two people where they can live independently, but also embedded within a neighborhood. Yard Homes works with homeowners and churches to consider what it would mean to have accessory dwelling units in their backyards that would provide a home for people who would be otherwise unhoused. The YMCA works with various voucher programs and housing stabilization processes to provide housing for young adults, for single parents, and different types of populations that might be at risk. They make sure that folks have a support team and social workers that will help them as they begin to enter into this housing. A partnership with Mill City, Yard Homes, and the YMCA could mean people could find a home in our backyards. As we begin to discover what these partnerships might look like, there's two experiments that we're exploring. First, Jesse and Carissa Thornson have had their home in Northeast approved to have an accessory dwelling unit. Secondly, we're considering what it would mean to have multiple accessory dwelling units at the Mill City Commons property where we have our midweek space as a church. With Yard Home's innovative funding models, we're going to be able to consider these experiments with relatively small financial investment. We're really excited about what might unfold. You can check out more information on our website. There you'll see that there's this short MB training course that helps us understand why increasing housing density within our city is so important. Most importantly, please be praying with us and we will see what God will do as we continue to move forward. I just, I, let's clap for these 25 people doing this discernment that only the Holy Spirit could lead. Our goal is that more people would find more housing in more homes and that being in this idea of a, a flip of the script, right? A great reversal that we're saying, even in my backyard, we will welcome people. Two celebrations. One, uh, the generosity team and the leadership team has already decided to give half of the startup funds needed for the, the Thornsons from the surplus of giving you all gave last year. So we only have half of the way to raise that money. It's very exciting. And, and secondly, 
uh, Yard Homes that puts these ADUs, they're so excited about this that they said, we'll raise the money if you're willing to do it at the Mill City Commons. <laughs> How exciting is that? So there might be some costs for us, but not all the startup costs to make that happen. So we've got a lot of questions, a lot of discernment and things to go. The Covenant members have a lot of things we have to talk about together, but head to that website. There's lots of questions that are, we're trying to answer and discover, but we're letting you in right in the beginning when we don't know exactly how this is going to go. But wouldn't it be amazing if the great reversal of NIMBY caught on to In My Backyard uh, beyond Mill City Church? Wouldn't that be incredible? How exciting is that in our lives? The great reversal. This is what I mean when I say that Jesus wants this for us. That, that when we say, yes, our hearts are filled with longing, but also we get to be full of joy when we see God lead us to do something only God could do. Jesus invites us out of love to receive his grace, to receive his salvation and a relationship with him, to be empowered by the Holy Spirit, to seek first the kingdom. And even if sometimes that kingdom is not quite yet found, I promise you that Jesus' promise will hold up, that eventually we will find all that we are looking for in him.